changes to the Divorce Act Part 4, Variation, Rescission, and Suspension. Welcome to our listeners on our Family Law Now podcast. I'm Russell Alexander. I've been practicing law with our team for over 20 years. We help clients who are going through separation and divorce. There were substantial changes made to the Divorce Act in March 2021. We're going to take a deep dive. This series is designed to help clients, parents, lawyers, dispute resolution practitioners, and other members of the family uh, justice system. We are borrowing our material heavily from the Department of Justice website. There will be a link to that uh, site in our show notes today. Please visit it if you want to learn more. This is the final part of our five-part series into the Divorce Act. Part one, we dealt with objectives and duties. Part two was a two-part series that took a deep dive into the best interests of the children. Part three, we did another deep dive into issues of mobility and jurisdiction. And this is our final part to wrap up these changes. So we have over eight hours of content for you to review if you want to take a deeper dive into one area or the other. We also do live webinars where we do a much higher overview of some of these issues. But this is designed for a deeper dive to get into the sections and talk about what's changed and what hasn't changed. So before we, oh, the other thing I want to mention is this is a federal statute. So what that means is it applies across Canada. And these provisions only apply to people who are married. If you're a common law, you're going to be subject to the provincial legislation. Most provinces are lining their legislation up with the Divorce Act changes. But keep in mind, this podcast and this YouTube series is designed for married couples that are subject to the provisions of the Divorce Act. So without further ado, we've got a all-star cast of guests assembled here today. Uh, briefly, uh, tell us about yourselves and then we'll get into these changes. Can you want to make a start, Nafisa? Sure. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Nafisa. I'm the Managing Associate at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. Um, and I've been practicing, I was called to the bar in 2010, so it's my 11th year this year. And um, but I'm looking forward years. to this discussion. What happened? 11 years already. I know, time flies, Russ, uh, when you're having fun. All right. Uh, Jason, you want to go next? Hi, I'm Jason Eisenberg. I'm uh, associate lawyer at Russ Alexander uh, as well. Um, and uh, practicing law for uh, 20 years, called the bar in 2000. Um, only do family law. Um, practice in some other areas in the past, but predominantly family law for those 20 years. Thank you for joining us, Jason. Uh, Margie, you're next. Hi, I'm Margie Primero-Pimentel. Um, I'm an associate family law lawyer here at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. I was called to the bar in 2002 and been practicing primary only family law, I should say, since uh, 2007. So now it's my 14th year. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, let's make a start. Nafisa, I think you got our first section. Yeah, so um, we're going to be um, reviewing variation, rescission, and suspension today. So that's section 17 of the Divorce Act. Um, so in terms of a variation order, um, this section allows parties to apply to vary, rescind, or suspend the terms of an existing support or parenting order. Um, so variation under the Divorce Act is not an appeal. It's not a new hearing. So when judges are looking at making any variations under section 17, they usually will limit themselves to making the appropriate variation, uh, but they're not gonna weigh all the factors to make a fresh order um, that's unrelated to the existing order, unless there are circumstances that require a rescission um, rather than a mere variation. So that's sort of an overall review of uh, this, the section. Um, so there have been some changes with regards to, uh, to the section. So I'm going to focus primarily on section, um, section 17, 1 to 3. Um, 
So briefly, a court of competent jurisdiction may make an order varying, rescinding, or suspending retroactively or prospectively uh, three types of orders. So there's a support order, a parenting order, or a contact order. Um, so there has been some language change. Um, and as, as there's been many podcasts about it, it's a language change from custody to parenting order. So in the old section, um, um, parenting order is referred to as custody order. It's now changed. And that's to broaden the language and to ensure that there's a an, an idea of what is in the best interest of the child. It's, it's right in there. Um, and, uh, you know, people get charged when we talk about custody. When mm -hmm. we just even say the term custody, it brings up a lot of emotion. And, and so I'm hoping that with this language change, it may um, help uh, our clients focus a little bit on um, you know, what does that actually mean? Um, and so that's, you know, parenting, and it, it really relates to children. Um, the other change here is um, in the in the in the old section, um, there's a very broad term as to what, you know, who can apply to vary and it says, you know, any other person, whereas in the new in the new section, um, it really further explains that and, and gives a little bit more um, more idea of what that is. So uh, a person other than a former spouse who is a parent of the child stands in the place of a parent or intends to stand in the place of a parent. So there's a little bit of definition there um, rather than just saying any other person. And then a contact order. So again, language changes. It's really important to understand the differences between a parenting order and a contact order. Um, so a, a contact order relates to um, uh, you know, a person who, um, it, it sets out time that um, a child spends with an important person in their life. So it could be a grandparent, could be an uncle. And, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about contact order versus a parenting order, where we're talking about either of the, uh, the former spouses um, or a person who's acted in place of parents. So again, very, uh, very in important distinction there. Yeah, great point. Um, there is gonna be an overview of all our topics in the show notes and also on the description. I do have six or seven items I was supposed to say, but we're gonna be getting into them in any event. Margie and I did a live webinar on these changes and we were having fun with this idea. There's these themes, right? Uh, some, some lawyers view themselves as uh, peacemaker, and some view themselves as an arsonist. I think Margie's take, or sorry, no, peacemaker or warrior. Yeah. Margie's take was arsonist, right? We all know lawyers that want to burn everything to the ground, or firefighter. I think she just likes the firefighters because we yes. keep coming back to firefighters all the time. <laughs> but that's kind of an interesting filter to run these changes through. So I think here, this is clearly a win for peacemakers and firefighters who are taking the fight out of the language. A lot of these clauses we're talking about today is to sort of clean up the act and tie up some of these ends to make it consistent. So that's what I think is happening here. How about you, Jason? Yeah, I agree. I think it's that whole philosophy shift to, um, instead of using words like custody and access as a thesis as a charge people up like there's a win or a lose i get joint or sole custody or i get access is the the, the the leftover prize after i lose custody or lose the child living with me you focus more on the child the child sees it as i got parents um, or i've got people that i have contact with and so you know that's what we should be doing is focusing more on the child because there is no winning and losing with the child um, there, there was was too little focus on them. And uh, whether you're a peacemaker, a firefighter, or whatever you are, um, you know, focusing more on the child is, is a good thing. Yeah. I guess the other filter Margie and I were playing around with, you know, are these changes an evolution or a revolution? You know, near the tail end before the Divorce Act changes came in, a lot of case management judges were telling us, who cares about the language? Water it down. Don't use those terms. Um, that's going to hold you up and send you off to trial because somebody thinks they're, they're losing, right? So in that respect, I think it's a bit of an evolution of what many superior court judges in Ontario 
we're already doing. But in a different respect, it's a revolution, right? We are taking the fight out of the divorce act in terms of the language, you know, even bringing grandparents and third parties into the scene and saying this could be, this could inform our decision as to the best interest of the child or children. I think it is revolutionary. You know, grandparents usually got shut out because of parental deference. Um, but what's your take, Margie? No, I, I completely agree. I'm just going to echo what everyone else has said. And, uh, you know, it, it's really taking away the wording uh, that's, it's really proprietary almost, um, like viewing children as property and um, taking that wording away from it. That's really an antiquated concept. Um, and uh, most often when, you know, when I had to talk about custody and access, they would, they would not really understand that it's really about decision-making. It's right. really about that bundle of rights as a parent when you're making important decisions about your children and not really about who, where the kid is going to stay or where the kid's going to live. Right. I mean, that's part of it, but custody, the old term custody is really about decision-making. And, and I really like the fact that they've changed that uh, to, to reflect the reality of what that word really means. And that's great insight. You know, most of the decisions affecting children um, when you're going to court have already been made, right? Religion, schooling, medical decisions, most Canadian families defer to their family doctor. Um, so all the, a lot of the big ones are gone, right? There's some other big ones out there, mobility and some other issues. But um, again, in that respect, I think that's really, really good insight. What do we got up next, Melissa? So we have a section, uh, subsection 17.5, uh, factors for parenting order or contact order. So before the court can make a variation order in respect of a parenting order or contact order, the court shall satisfy itself that there has been a change of the circumstances of the child since the making of the order or the last variation order made in respect of the order or of an order made under section subsection 16. So this is really um, a section that focuses on, you know, what is the court looking at if they have an order and they need to vary it? Um, you know, what is it that, what's their test? And it's really um, a change in circumstances and, and really a material change in circumstances if you look at the case law around um, subsection 17. Um, so uh, usually there's a finding that, if there is a finding that there's a material change in circumstances, it's, it's a two-part test. So to succeed and a person that's applying to uh, vary a, an order, they must show that there's been a change in either the conditions, means, needs, or other circumstances of the parties or of the child. And it has occurred since the last order. So for example, you know, retirement, potentially um, a huge increase in income, a huge decrease in income. Um, those are potential um, uh, reasons why a court would go back and look at um, an order and make a, a varying um, subsequent order. Interesting. I see Margie's taking a sip of her coffee, so I'm going to ask her for her comments <laughs> and try to catch her off guard, but it was too slow. Oh, thank, thank you, Russ. Um, I, I just found it interesting, and, and uh, like, like Nafisa said, it's, it's material change in circumstances. And that's taken from the, I believe it's the, the Supreme Court can decision in Willick and Willick and, um, and subsequent decisions, including the Supreme Court of Canada have used material change in circumstances. Um, and so basically you have to not just, it's not a mere change, it has to be material. So when I was preparing for this, for this podcast and I was reading it, I was wondering why did the legislature not specifically say material change in circumstances? I, I'm just wondering, why um, they didn't take this opportunity to, to make that clear. Because if, mm -hmm. if the other changes in the Divorce Act um, are there to assist uh, non-represented litigants in understanding their duties to, uh, for example, to not expose their children to conflict. Um, so if some of these changes were to assist non-represented litigants, why not include the word material in there? That's just a thought I had. I, yeah. What are your thoughts about that? I don't know. Yeah, could have gone, could have gone further for the peacemaker and the firefighter, right? Yeah. People get in the fight over what a material change is, right? And yeah. sometimes if you have an experienced lawyer, will list items. We may forget something, uh, or we may say it's not exhaustive. But um, 
And I, I wanted to add to that, Russ, what's interesting, Margie, is that if we look at the language in the, in the Children's Law Reform Act, for example, Section 29, it actually says material, right? So yeah. I, there, there is a reason why um, the courts left it out, uh, the, sorry, the legislature left it out in this, because again, if we look at the other legislation, it actually says uh, a, a material, it has to be material and it's right in there in Section 29. So that's interesting. Yeah, interesting. It'll be, um, we'll have to watch, see how courts approach that issue. What do you think, Jason? I think some of the answer to Marge's question may be in the fact that what they don't say at all here is um, the standard. And um, mm -hmm. it says what they took out from the original draft into the new one is any mention of best interest of the child. And um, I think the reason why they took it out is it's already there earlier that that's what a judge has to look at. So they've defined best interest of the child. This is what a judge has to look at. These are the things you consider when you're making any decisions about these, about parenting time, about contact. And um, therefore then, you know, you're looking for a change um, to a child. And if you already have a standard of what you're looking at that's in their best interest, and that's the standard a judge has to follow, then you know, saying there's a material change, saying there's a change, we're we're we're, we're looking at the, that best interest test and saying, is this good for them or not? And so, um, you know, that wasn't mentioned; it was taken out because it's already implied. Uh, first off, and then I think it gave a judge the ability to look at. It. I mean, because the best interest test was never in the Divorce Act, right? Like it was came from the Children's Law Reform Act in this province. Um, I think we used it in divorce divorce parents that were married but um you know we're looking at the idea that now this is whether you want to talk about revolution or evolution um that that's what a judge now has to look at we gave them a little more guidance in these cases and uh, uh that could mean that we didn't have to specifically go to material change but just a change in those standards of what's in the child's best interest that's interesting i'm starting to think about the legislation differently even as we're having this discussion Maybe they're concerned that a material change definition would handcuff the best interest analysis, and they don't want to do that. They want the court to go right to best interest without any limitation. And that could be why it's silent with respect to material change. Otherwise, the warriors and the arsonists are going to come in and say, there's no change here. You can't go to the uh, best interest analysis. They haven't met the threshold. So this is pretty good insight, Jason. I've never really thought of it that way. Okay, Jason, I think uh, you're up next. I'm not going to go through your overview. Let's just dive right in. All right, well, we're looking at 17 sub uh, 5.1, and uh, it's a new section. Uh, what it says is, is that the, for the purposes of sec, sub, subsection uh, 5 on variation order, a former spouse's terminal illness or critical condition shall be considered a change in the circumstances of the child and the court shall make a variation order in respect of a parenting order um, with regard to the allocation of parenting time. And um, basically this is an amendment uh, related to parenting. So what, what's asked as far as the reason for the change is it's emphasizing that the best interest of the child, uh, as I was saying earlier, is kind of what we're featuring here. Uh, it's a focus on the relationships with the children and, and, and the persons in their life. So if you're talking about changes to parenting orders, custody, you know, um, contact, uh, clearly if there is a change to the parent to the point where it's a terminal illness, um, sort of looking at the wording again, uh, we're looking at critical condition, um, it shall be considered a change in circumstance. So instead of this debate about material change, should this be something that we allow for um, contact and parenting to be changed, if that happens, we're kind of featuring it. We're putting it in there now. We're saying the debate's gone. Um, clearly, that type of change to a person who is, you know, um, a former spouse, as they say, uh, uh, you know, their, their illness or critical condition would affect a child. So we're taking that debate out of it. It, it, it really just is saying, if you're spending time with this person as a child, then clearly that the change in their circumstance of that nature would mean that we should be looking at the parenting contact or could um, uh, orders and change them. It's kind of a depressing section, really. A terminal illness or critical. Yeah, thanks for giving it to me. 
Um, <laughs> lots of times we have clients who are terminally ill and they usually put in place uh, a guardianship agreement or provisions that the child will maybe go to the other parent or go to a sister or, or aunt or uncle because the other parent doesn't have the skill set, right? And I guess this is specifically, to, I, I'm, I guess it's pretty obvious this is going to be a change if the person who has uh, caregiving or the parenting order dies. Uh, that's obvious. I'm just, I'm just surprised they put in legislation here, I guess, if you need to point to it to bring the matter before the court, that's something that's there. Um, what do you think of this, Mathisa? I think it's interesting that they carved this out as, uh, as something that they wanted to ensure that it shall be considered a change of circumstances. But I think it really does um, refocus why they did that. Um, you know, if, if the, the former uh, parent has a terminal illness, you don't want them stuck in court trying to figure out, okay, is this um, having to meet that test of whether it's a change in circumstances. So I think it's eliminating some, some of that litigation where, you know, you know, right away, it's a change in circumstances. We can deal with that situation in a timely manner. So I think that that's, um, you know, again, focused on the children because the impact is the children, right? If, if a parent is ill and unable to take care of them or if there's in a situation, um, uh, I think it's important for, for this to be in here because I know there has been litigation where, you know, we've had clients who are terminally ill and stuck in litigation and, you know, um, really, really awful situations, so. And it does anchor, it goes back to the best interest of the child analysis and everything seems to circle back to uh, focusing the court on that analysis. What do you think, Margie? I, I, there's not really much for me to say. I mean, it's, it's, I, I agree with what everyone else has said. And um, I think, you know, the removal of any reference to the best interest of a child really, it really doesn't mean anything in a sense that, you know, section 16.1 already says the best interest of a child is the only consideration, mm -hmm. regardless of what we're talking about. And so in this case, if it's a terminal illness, um, or critical illness of a, of a parent, um, then it's, it has to be decided on, uh, based on the best interest of the child. Right, agreed. Okay, Jason, I think you got our next uh, item. Well, it's 17 uh, sub 5.2 now, and um, it's a completely new section uh, dealing with relocation. And what it says is the relocation of a child is deemed to constitute a change in the circumstances of the child for the purposes of section subsection five. Uh, there was no old section. Um, so it's basically establishing that a child, if, there, if there's going to be a relocation, um, it is uh, a change in the circumstances for a child um, that would allow for the varying of a parenting order or contact order. And it's recognizing that that is something that clearly um, would be some type of change if you're trying to relocate a child instead of debating whether it is or isn't. Um, and, uh, um, you know, discouraging people from Litigating trivial matters um, is, is possibly what you're trying to do in here, but recognizing that that would be significant enough that um, we don't need to be debating it anymore. Right. I wonder what the, how we're going to define um, relocation, right? Is going to a different jurisdiction, I'm, like different school district relocating or going to a different city or a jurisdiction or the court or province. You know, there might be a little bit of gray area there for arsonists and uh, lawyers to uh, carve out, but I'm not sure. It certainly, it sort of does, it does provide clarification and I think that's a good thing. Um, Margie, what do you think? Well, to your, to your point, I think um, it, when you're talking about relocation and whether or not it's relocation within the definition of the divorce act, I think you'd have to be looking at how it impacts the child. Um, and so, you know, if it, if it impacts a child, obviously a relocation where a child, for, for example, moves to a different province, that will naturally impact their relationship with the other parent. And, and I think with, um, you know, this, this essentially codifies Gordon and Gertz, right? It, it's it, Gordon and Gertz essentially said that uh, any relocation is always a material change. So, that's Bill Rogers' favorite case, right? Gordon Gertz. Is it? 
Yeah, well, he, when we did relocation, he just loved that <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> okay. Nafisa, thoughts? Um, yeah, no, I agree. Um, again, I have I have a case where, you know, the client's moving around the corner and uh, is this a relocation? How does that impact the child, right? And that was my argument, you know, moving around the corner, the relationship between the, you know, the access parenting uh, time parent is not going to change. So um, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what um, what parameters are placed on relocation, because I do see it as a, a as a tool that certain lawyers will use uh, to control potentially um, um, from the mindset of their client um, trying to control the other parent. Right. So I think it, it is important. Um, but it's got to be right in there. Uh, the impact to the children of any relocation that's substantial um, is a, an important factor and has to be considered um, in the best interest of the children. And there's lots of families going through um, dealing with relocation issues right now. Right? The housing market has gone crazy. The rental market's difficult. People, lots of people want to move out of the cities. They can work remotely now. So this could be a big issue for the next two or three years until the pandemic settles down, I can see um, lots of, lots of um, you know, basic arguments about affordable housing, right? What's in the best interest of the child? I can't afford to purchase a house that's two or $300,000 over asking price, so. Right. And again, it's weighing that, you know, weighing that concern over, you know, the, the contact with the other parent, right? right. So um, that this was actually just uh, the, the, a mobility issue I just dealt with. Um, and it was really hard. The judge had, you know, had to balance um, the mother's inability to uh, to pay or afford a house and how far she could go from the father to ensure that the children maintain that uh, parenting schedule. So it will be a live issue. Um, you know, people just cannot afford to live close to each other once that matrimonial home is sold. Where does the, the, the parent move to with the children? Um, and how do they make sure that wherever they go to, the other parent um, is close enough to, to have that important um, contact? And in Southern Ontario, with the market the way it is, we're seeing people move further and further up north. Oftentimes, they're moving out of province to the East Coast, where it's more affordable. So I think this uh, issue is going to be on the, on the front burner for a while. What a great, great insight, Nafisa. Thanks for sharing your example. What have we got up next, Jason? Well, this is uh, now 17 sub 5.3 of the Divorce Act, and uh, it's a new section. It says, uh, relocation prohibited and no change in circumstances. A relocation of a child that has been prohibited by a court order under paragraph 1B or section 16.1 does not in itself constitute change in the circumstances of the child for the purposes of subsection five. So this provision prevents the variation of an order simply on the basis that an application for relocation was denied. So I guess this is one for your um, arsonists, your, uh, your uh, warriors. Well, uh, because it's basically saying if I ask to move, uh, relocate, whatever wording, mobility, whatever you want to fill in there, and I lose, um, does that loss in and of itself allow me then to say, well, there's some material change now, like I can't move. And if I can't move, I want to do something else now. I mean, that's why I see it. Maybe there's a more broad way to look at it. So it's a way of saying, well, every, every loss is still potentially a victory if you want to reframe it, repackage it, whatever you want to do. And that's what warriors and arsonists might do is continue the fight. So um, if there was no change in the child's circumstances, then it shouldn't be, you know, do, you know, the real, you know, based on the relocation, then you shouldn't be allowed to just go back in and re-argue that, um, you know, if there's been a change in the circumstances of a child material, otherwise, then you still have that remedy, right? Come back and talk about it then. But if you lose and you don't get what you want, it doesn't mean like, oh, now, 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 look, um, I have to stay here. This is whole, a whole new change. Let me, let me repackage this in a different way and continue the, uh, the argument. Interesting. Nafisa? I, I, I didn't really understand this section as to why it was in there, to be honest, um, but I'm guessing that 
someone or has made that argument. And so um, the legislation, uh, the legislature decided that, you know, we'll put it right in there. It's not a material change in circumstances. If you've tried it, didn't work, your application got denied, that in and of itself isn't a material change. So I think it, it's happened and they wanted to protect against that, but uh, I don't really, uh, I don't really understand the section. Margie, your firefighters and uh, peacemakers might be taking a bit of a hit on this one. What do you think? Well, I think, well, when you think about what the Supreme Court of Canada has said and it's, it's material change in circumstances and what that means is not only uh, a change or a, a material change in the child's needs, but it's also, also the ability of the parents to meet the needs of those children in a fundamental way, then can't we argue that if a parent who wishes to relocate, for example, for a job, right? And their relocation application um, has been denied. Uh, doesn't that affect that parent's ability to meet the needs of the child? So I guess it doesn't really, I guess this provision doesn't necessarily prohibit a, a, an argument by an arsonist or a, a warrior on that basis. Um, but it's just, for me, it, it, it's, it just draws my question. It, it, it makes me question that, right? If, if, if you can't relocate with the child, then you have this wonderful job, you have to support your child. Um, where does that leave you? Um, I, I, in, in, my, in my opinion, that is a material change because it, it affects your ability to meet the needs of that child. Yeah, when we did the relocation um, podcasts, one of the provisions which seemed a bit different was it, the court cannot consider um, if the parent will still move if they can't move with the child. That was like a forbidden analysis and there's some debate over why that was in there. I think this is sort of along the same lines as that stream of thought in terms of the approach the legislature was taking. But it, the, the, the commentary on the Government of Canada site does indicate this provision is similar to one in British Columbia's Family Law Act. So I guess if there is some gray area here, you could do some research in terms of how BC has dealt with this specific provision. And those cases may inform us in terms of how the courts in Ontario and other places of Canada will approach it. So interesting point. Um, again, something that we're gonna see some developments in, I think in the future. And again, if there's gray area, you know, these, lawyer, these lawyers who are warriors or want to fight uh, is gonna give them some wiggle room, right? Maybe we could have done a better job pinning this part down uh, for the peacemakers in firefighter type players out there. Uh, are we moving on? I think you're done, Jason. Do you have one more? Uh, I think that's it for me. Well, that was a great summary. Okay, Margie, you're at bat. Okay, so the another change to the Divorce Act is uh, priority to child support, and that's under Section 17, Sub 6.6. .6, and this is a new uh, provision. This was did not exist before. Um, and it comes after subsection 6.5. So what section 6.6 .6 says is that uh, section 15.3 applies with any necessary modifications when a court is considering an application under paragraph one sub A, which is an application to vary, rescind, or suspend uh, in respect of a child support order and an application under that paragraph in respect of a spouse support order. And Section 15.3 says that where a court is considering an application for a child support order and an application for a spouse support order, the court shall give priority to child support in determining the applications. So in other words, priority is given to child support either um, in an original application for child and spouse support um, in the first instance or and also now on variations of a child support, uh, of a support order, sorry. And so child support always takes priority over spouse support. And when I go over the, the support calculations with my clients, I tell them that the amount of spouse support is determined really by the amount of child support, if any. And so once the child support is taken off the top, um, and that's from your disposable income, then the divorce mate calculator provides a range for spousal support. So the bottom line is that child support comes off the top first and whatever's left over, it's filtered down to determine spouse support. So this change really just simply codifies that principle that 
you know, we as family lawyers have, you know, told our clients in the past. Interesting. So more of an evolution. What do you think, uh, Jason? Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, if you're looking at um, child and spousal support, spousal gets paid last. Um, in some cases, it's, you know, determined by what's paid beforehand in child support um, or affected by, it, I should say. And uh, if you're going to vary orders of spousal or child support, that same principle should apply in variations, right? That's what these sections are about. Um, don't use one theory for orders when you uh, first separate and you're figuring out what to do with support and then use a different theory, a different priority to child support uh, or not um, when there's variations. So uh, um, it should be uniform and that's kind of what this does. Nafisa? Yes, yeah, so I have some of the same um, comments, um, you know, but again, it refocuses, okay, children come first, like what, you know, at the end of the day, we have to make sure that the children are uh, taken care of. And sometimes people just don't have the means to do both child support and spousal support. So even though there's entitlement to spousal support, um, uh, based on, you know, a, a need um, or a, a compensatory basis for spousal support, um, the, 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 the payor may just not have the, the financial means to pay it out. So that's something that is important for support recipients to understand that, you know, you can be entitled to it, but we have to look at, you know, reality sometimes kicks in and we look at the dollars um, there just simply in, isn't enough money to go around for both a child support and a spousal support payment. So that's important for uh, for uh, support recipients to understand um, for spousal support. Yeah, it's, it's an evolution, certainly, of what we're doing already. I'm just trying to think through um, some of the concepts here, right? There's You think of the family's incomes for both spouses as a pie, right? We divide it up. Oftentimes the parent with the children will get a bit bigger slice of that pie because their expenses are higher. Um, so I'm just trying to think of scenarios where we would need to say, child support is gonna trump spousal support. I guess there's tax consequences to a child support payment. So that may put a little bit extra money into the recipient's pocket, right? If it's coming tax-free, uh, that may be a, a good benefit or perhaps I'm thinking maybe there's a scenario where the higher income earner has the children and um, the lower income earner is making a spousal support claim. Or there could be a section nine set off where they're equally sharing parenting uh, and there could or could not be a support claim. But uh, then you that's when your, your child support comes first argument with Trump, right? So I'm just trying to play out the scenarios in a, in a practical way in terms of how that's gonna affect families. But uh, clearly child support should come first. Uh, thank you for that, Margie. What do you got next? The next one is uh, there was a, a removal of um, section 17.9, uh, sorry, 17 sub nine of the Divorce Act. Um, and that uh, section no longer exists. And that section um, was, really the maximum contact principle. And so what that said was, what section 17 sub nine said uh, was in making a variation order, varying a custody order, the court shall give effect to the principle that a child of the marriage should have as much contact with each former spouse as is consistent with the best interest of the child. And for that purpose, where the variation order would grant custody of the child to a person who does not currently have custody, the court shall take into consideration the willingness of that person to facilitate such contact. And so the maximum contact principle, um, as it applies to variation applications under the old section, um, is in line with the changes at section 16 sub 6 of the Divorce Act, which also replaced uh, the maximum contact um, principle in, in the Divorce Act. So the removal of the of reference to the maximum contact principle in both you know, in original applications and variations, um, it really signals a, a, a it it's signals a clear message from the legislature that there's no presumption of equal or shared parenting in Canada, um, and you know, and that parenting time, whether or not it's an original application or or variation, has to be consistent with the best interest of the child. But having said that, 
um, even though the, the, the former section, which references, um, you know, willingness of the parents to facilitate time, that's still in the Divorce Act. Um, and that's actually one of the, uh, you know, factors to be considered in, in taking into account the best interest of the child. So the ability, ability and willingness of each parent to communicate and uh, cooperate um, with one another on matters affecting the child. So it's clear that, uh, you know, that the, the new Divorce Act doesn't create presumptions in favor of shared parenting, but it still encourages co-parenting um, to the extent that the arrangement is appropriate and obviously doesn't you know, pose any uh, risk to the safety of the child. Yeah, I think removing maximum contact is a, a revolution. It really does open the door for third parties, uh, especially grandparents to have more of a say and we see that even in relocation applications that these people need to be provided with notice. So uh, clearly an important change um, would be my view. Lisa, thoughts? Yeah, I do agree. Um, you know, again, with the maximum contact principle, there are lots of arguments being made. You know, well, you're not, you're not, uh, uh, you're not acting in the best interest of the child because maximum contact um, is what um, what is necessary here is, is an argument I've heard a lot of times so contextualizing this um, and it, it's really it's not it's not the best interest of the parent so right. you know making sure that the time that the children spend with either parents is in their best interest it's not that it has to start at a presumption of 50 50 um, so it's taking the, that argument out and really focusing on the circumstances of the child and the relationship between the child and each parent so um, I, I do uh, welcome this change we often see that emotions court right parents saying i want my access this is my time well guess what it's not about you it's about the best interests of the child but we see that all the time right like this, yes. is, this is this is something that belongs to them and this clarifies that no, it doesn't. You know, it's not maximum contact. It's best interest. Jason, thoughts? Yeah, I, mean, I agree with everything everyone said, and I think that this change to the act is—it's um, about housekeeping. So it's basically saying that we've gotten rid of that principle. Um, we have a new idea of how we decide this. Um, a judge um, is going to apply the same rationale, test, whatever word you want to use um, in variations than they would in the first instance when families come before the judge and want to make decisions about parenting time and contact. So, um, you know, we don't want people to feel like there's been a philosophy shift when you first come before us and then no philosophy shift when you want to vary. So it's basically the housekeeping and saying whatever we say you should be looking at now when you're first separated or whatever first happens, um, same principles apply in variations. And, uh, uh, you know, you've got a one way you should have it the other. Yeah. So that's, that's, you know, why this has been cleaned up more or less. Yeah, thank you. Great summary, uh, Margie. Of course, I give myself the easy one. Um, copy of the order, section 17 sub 11 of the Divorce Act. So this is uh, sort of wrapping up our podcast today. Uh, it indicates where a court makes a variation order in respect of a support order, parenting order, or contact order made by another court, it shall send a copy of the variation order certified by judge or officer of the court to that other court. So this is really just cleaning up the, the language of, um, I guess, the old court file and saying this is the new order with the new terms. If it's coming, if the old order contained terms like custody or access, so really, this is I like a lot of these sections today. It's just a housekeeping um, matter. I'm not sure if there's much commentary on this. What do you think of this section, Margie? Um, not much. It's just yeah. I, I just echo what you said, which is just replacing the word custody um, with uh, parenting order, um, and yeah. it's uh, it's just in line with everything else that's happened with section 17 as well. Right, Lisa? Yeah, I agree. I think it's just making sure that if you're making a change to a, an order and um, that order is not necessarily in the jurisdiction of the first court order because the parents have moved or relocated, um, it's just to make sure that uh, any orders that are subsequent to that uh, are, 
you know, are sent to the um, to the other court um, to keep the, the record um, uh, up to date. I would think that that would be the reason for this clause. So maybe avoid mischief, right? Somebody going to the old court and saying this is the current order when it's not, you know, it's been updated in a different jurisdiction. Right. So they can have dueling court orders. That that could be maybe they're suspecting the worst of people and so it's a good safeguard. Jason, thoughts? Yeah, I, I, again, I agree with everybody. And, and just to add that again, it's like you said, housekeeping. Um, you know, we're not calling it um, custody order. We're not calling it um, that terminology anymore. We now have parenting, we now have contact. So they had to amend this to add that in there so that people were like, hey, wait a second. You didn't say it there. Why the, the, the arsonist uh, warriors are going to go, why wasn't it there? There's got to be a reason why they left it out there. So you've got to clean up everything to make sure there's consistency in the act now. Finish a win with uh, Margie's firefighters for this one. Way to go, Margie. <laughs> well, this has been quite a journey. Um, everybody here has dedicated hours of their time to educate the public on these changes and um, in their very busy schedules. I know Nafisa is in the middle of trial sittings right now. So we're really fortunate to be using some of her time today. Let's wrap up our podcast and video today with final thoughts on today's changes and maybe to the changes to the Divorce Act overall, since this is our final series, this is final recording for this series. Um, I'll go first and say, I think um, these are changes long overdue. Um, it certainly is going to help the family law bar by providing us with some guidance <clears throat> in terms of how we can advise our clients on these very important issues that affect their everyday lives. You know, relocation has been a terrible fight for many families, usually requiring two or three years of litigation and a trial if there's no decision. That's not something a, a judge would decide on a motion. So. The relocation uh, rules and onuses are super beneficial to help predicting what the outcome is going to be. Best interest of the child, super beneficial. Uh, focus on family violence, which is uh, plaguing our, uh, our families throughout the country, I think is another super important change. Uh, overall, really refreshing to see these changes. I'm happy that they were made. What are your final thoughts, Margie? I agree. Uh, I think these changes uh, were long overdue. And I like the fact that a lot of the changes really focus on the children. Um, and it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, the legislature felt they had to put in things like, uh, you know, the willingness of parents to, to uh, facilitate relationship with the other parent and, yeah. you know, trying to utilize um, other processes, processes other than court. Um, it's unfortunate that they had to put that in there, but for, for people, uh, you know, litigious types of uh, individuals who are not represented, um, I think they need that in the, in the act so they can understand what they need to prove. And it, it's, um, it's a welcome change for sure. Yeah, we, we always, you know, have that question, how do you stop a litigant who will stop at nothing, right? We have these people who are just out to, you know, they're arsonists, they wanna burn everything to the ground. They're unhappy with the relationship or the way it ended for whatever reason. So I think you're right, Margie, these changes uh, send a very clear message uh, to litigants who um, only wanna litigate, right? And for probably improper purposes. Um, who do we wanna go next, uh, Jason? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, I don't, I don't, my thoughts are, whether I'm correct or not, is that um, these changes, um, you know, family law is an area where there can be great, um, you know, every major change we've had, um, you know, child support guidelines, spousal support advisory guidelines, and their mandate clarity to take away argument, uh, you know, child support turned into mostly arguments about income and time. Um, you know, if that was the intent or if that was the product but the arsonist and the warrior is always going to find something to argue about and i think I, my thought is is the intent was to take away argument here and create clarity and say this is what we need to look at this is what we focus on um 
because the more we can do that for children, the better, or litigants, everyone involved. It doesn't matter who, who it is. Uh, you're always gonna find people that want to argue things, but I, I would say that my thoughts were that this is a development, you're right, long overdue, um, and hopefully adds clarity, takes away argument, or maybe narrows argument, so there's less to argue about, because yes, it takes far too long to navigate your way through court, and that's what we're doing here in a lot of cases, and it takes far too much money and far too much damage um, to the children and all the players along the way. So uh, we can add clarity, we can hopefully uh, take away argument. Good point, thank you. Nafisa? Yeah, um, I, I agree with everyone. I think that this is, you know, first step. Language is so important and the words that we use um, to, you know, it really does provide us with the tools in terms of, of language to be able to be more settlement focused, um, you know, parenting time, uh, decision-making responsibility. Um, it really does, those words don't ring as, uh, it's not as hard for people to a stomach, you know, oh, the, you know, you're not going to have uh, custody is such a hard um, uh, idea to, uh, to stomach. So I think that, you know, it's giving us some tools that we can put in our toolbox in terms of language. Um, because settlement is the way to go with family law, right? Um, repairing that relationship so that the parents can um, can parent these children and really focus on their development rather than spending five years in litigation, um, ruining that relationship and, and probably, you know, really um, uh, jeopardizing uh, th their mental health as well as the health of their children. So, um, I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing the impact of this. I'm, I'm more optimistic than Jason. So I'm hoping that um, uh, although I, I don't have as much experience, I'm hoping that this will be a shift in mentality and a shift in the way that we practice um, and, and hopefully a start to a more collaborative way to resolve these issues. Great, great comments. I want to thank our guests again, Nafisa, Jason, and Margie for giving us their time so generously today. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. Please leave your thoughts and comments below. If you like this, you can give it a thumbs up. Thank you for watching today.